When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Do you enjoy reading but find it often gives you eye strain or tired eyes? The high definition light from Serious Readers is perfect for anyone who finds it difficult to read small print or who works at close quarters. It uses daylight wavelength technology to reduce eye strain, allowing you to read and work in comfort for longer periods. With adjustable beam width, dimmer and a fully flexible arm, the high-definition light illuminates every task with precision. It's recommended by over 500 independent opticians, so why not see the difference for yourself with a 30-day risk-free trial? Order now and save £100 when you use the offer code PODCAST at SeriousReaders.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Lucy, hi, how are you? I'm fine, Alex. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I saw my attention was drawn at the weekend to a piece written by one Alex Clark about a new French novel. (laughs) Would you like to tell us about that? would I? (laughs) I know. It's a very sort of post-watershed. Oh, yeah. Don't tell us in too much detail, please. No, I'm not going to tell you in too much detail at all. It's the Bruno Le Maire, who is the economics minister in France, but has run into some trouble for writing a saucy novel and, you know, doing it essentially while people in France and Paris, perhaps in particular, where all the riots and looting and burning and all this kind of thing is happening, perhaps have more important things to worry about than how to get the perfect metaphor. Is Is that a fair summation? Lucy, without going into too much explicit detail. Yes. Well, you unfortunately had to read the book, which doesn't sound like a completely unalloyed pleasure if I read your piece perceptively. Not entirely. What was particularly, I mean, it actually was quite an interesting thing to, to discover about because I didn't know anything about it, but to discover this sort of relationship between him and the French novelist Michel Houellebecq, in which, you know, he is the model for a character, but actually quite nicely portrayed politician. Mm in Welbeck's last novel, Anéantia. And they seem to have a sort of very kind of civilised kind of relationship where they sit around, you know, probably sort of talking about books. When there's a politician in it, you think, oh, there's going to be a problem here, it's going to be awful. But actually he's rather, yeah, he's rather a good guy and he's very sympathetically portrayed. And actually it's it's one of the 
what's the word? It's one of the, I suppose, more pleasant bits of that novel. You have read that novel being a fluent French speaker and reader, haven't you? It's not yet, I don't think, translated into English. Was it not a book that you enormously enjoyed? Oh, is it not? Oh, I thought it was. Well, I don't think it's not supposed to be enjoyable, but actually, no, there was a lot in it that was, you know, in his prime, Welbeck was very sharp and and you could disagree with a lot of it, but it was it kind of thought-provoking, whereas here it seemed like he seems to have lost... Or, I mean, he's a very clever man. He must be doing it on purpose. It's much less subtle and it seems to be nailing his colours to the mast much more. And his colours, I have to say, seem seem to be pretty unpleasant. It's very pretty bad about women. I mean, it says kind of awful things about all sorts of sets of people. I mean, he is a bit like that. But actually the guy, the politician in it, his friend who is actual Bruno Le Maire, does come out of it quite well. In fact, the nicest thing that I thought that came out of your piece was how he helped Welbeck with his dog. I knew you were going to, I knew that you were going to talk about the dog because it was the big, and you're right, because it was the nicest thing that his beloved, I mean, one of, I think, more than one dog that he's had, Welbeck, but perhaps his most beloved, Clement, when he died, Welbeck was living in Ireland, but wanted to repatriate Clement to France and Bruno Le Maire, helped him out, got through that red tape that happens when you want to bring your your dog home. Mm. So, yes, that's the nicer side of many aspects of that story, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> right, moving swiftly on. I mean, we've done really, really well. We've got to dogs and all sorts there, but we haven't actually revealed. And you'll have to read the piece, frankly, if you want to want to discover quite why it's got people so much up in arms. But let's say we're not going to be taking on our summer holidays, are we, Lucy? Definitely not. You read it and now I don't have to. So thank you very (laughs) much for that. I took one for the team there. Coming up on this week's show, Ben Hutchinson takes us to Paris. We're speaking of France and we're going back there and an exhibition of the history of type and Joe Moran on the power of imagination. But first, what would you say was the founding myth of modernity? It's a horribly difficult question with lots of possible answers, but one very strong possibility would be the printing press, which appeared around the middle of the 15th century. Another revolutionary new technology appeared around then too, which is often contrasted with printing, and that one we'll explore presently. But the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris has an exhibition on at the moment called Imprimé l'Europe de Gutenberg. And Ben Hutchinson, Professor of European Literature at the University of Kent and a TLS consultant editor, went along to see it, wrote us a splendid piece and is here to discuss it today. Ben, many thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Lucy. So the subtitle of this exhibition is The Europe of Gutenberg, Gutenberg's Europe. And we do tend to think of printing It's quite a telling subtitle, isn't it? We tend to think of it, first of all, as very much the invention or creation of one man. But as you say, that's an oversimplification, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's good to start with the subtitle, actually, because ironically, the three components of it, namely Europe, Gutenberg and the dates, 1450 to 1520, uh, in a sense, the exhibition pushes beyond all three of those. So it's leading and it's misleading. It's about Gutenberg, of course, the exhibition, in as much as we think of him as the person who invented printing, but he didn't do it by himself. And he didn't, of course, actually invent printing. It existed before him in various different forms, and it existed crucially outside of Europe. So although the exhibition seems to focus on Europe, it's in fact, at least initially, not not simply Eurocentric. And to come to the third element, those dates, of course, it shows us the prehistory of printing. 
and crucially, its subsequent impact. Mm. That was going to be my next question. It wasn't only in Europe, was it? So tell us about the antecedent and the non-European version that uh, was completely news to me. Yeah, well, as I say, I think there are basically three elements to this exhibition. And and starting with the prehistory, the first element, that's the non-European part. That's before we get to Gutenberg in the mid-15th century. And so what we see essentially is that this comes in from Asia, from Korea, from China in particular. Now, of course, the invention of paper goes, goes way back a thousand years and more into the history of China. But printing too, in its various forms, printing on wood and then indeed printing on movable metallic type, which is the crucial intervention, if you like, of Gutenberg, at least in the European story. All of that also predates him. And in particular, in Korea in 1377, it's what's generally thought to be the first printed book, at least printed on metallic type. And that's the Jikchi. So it's a collection of Buddhist teachings published uh, or printed almost 80 years prior to Gutenberg's Bible in 1377. So that's the non-European, the Asian prehistory. I should say, though, that we don't have any evidence that Gutenberg knew anything about that. So it's I may be giving the impression that, that this comes in from Asia. But in fact, we don't know that Gutenberg was directly influenced by any of the Asian developments. It's simply that it, it pre-existed historically. Yeah, and that quite often happens, doesn't it, with kind of new technologies, that yeah. actually there are two or three versions of it going on and people aren't always aware. So there may have just cropped up at sort of roughly the same time, some centuries apart, but roughly the same kind of period in history quite sort of coincidentally or or perhaps as a kind of response to what was a a need for something to happen, I suppose. What were the conditions for those earlier kind of printing systems to arise? What made it happen in Korea, I wonder? Well, that's the crucial question, really. And it's the thing the exhibition wants to show that that the social preconditions, I say social, I mean, really, one could talk about this as an intellectual, technological, legal, political, religious, and indeed social development. And it's it's all those things and more. The adjectives uh, pile up, so to speak, because you have to have the need and the desire to create these things in the first place. Now, in the Asian part of this story, we had, as I say, the existence of paper going back many hundreds of years. I mean, what do you need for printing? You need, at least in the, in the version that came down to us from Gutenberg, you need paper, you need the press, and you need ink. Those are the three key elements. Now, you can print on other things than paper, and that's certainly what happened uh, before Gutenberg and indeed uh, afterwards, but that's that's the cheapest model. You need the technology to create the press, and you need the movable parts. Now, in Asia, they were initially uh, wood. wood they were basically woodcuts, wood engravings that were then stamped onto whatever the, the support was, whether it was paper or parchment. That's what then came down into Europe too and predates Gutenberg, the etchings or stampings on wood. Gutenberg's key invention is is the metallic type the movable metallic type which you could then set in different ways and you could press that onto your onto your parchment or onto your paper and that's the crucial element that makes possible the multiplication of copies of books and there is a copy of the jikji isn't there there at the bibliothèque nationale there is so you can see it is it what's it like it's very beautiful of course you it's behind glass so you can see pages of it you can't just flick through it clearly alas but that's, I mean, so you mentioned the word beautiful and that adjective too. I mean, this exhibition is nothing if not that simply because of the, the holdings of books that it has. And as I write in the piece, one gets the impression it's almost an excuse just to show off all these mm. books that were printed around Gutenberg. And then after, of course, in the half century or so that followed Gutenberg's development of the, the technique. 
Because you say there are two copies of the Gutenberg Bible. There's a paper copy and a parchment copy, which is like a kind of posh copy and, and a general one. I mean, I'm, you know, that's my horrible paraphrase, by the way, not yours. No, no, that's exactly right. The one on parchment or vellum was clearly much more expensive. The one on paper was cheaper. So, and that points towards what would then happen. Namely, there will be different kinds of markets for different kinds of books, as I suppose there still are. But clearly back in the day with technology in its infancy, it was a very expensive process. There were very few copies of these books. The ones that were on parchment were much more durable and therefore much more expensive and restricted to an extremely small number of people. Of course, it's obvious, but we mustn't forget that the whole idea of reading at this time is already restricted to a small number of people. Mm. So access to these books really was within court circles, religious circles, uh, educated circles, clearly. Mm -hmm. Is it right also to say, given that you've been talking about Bibles and talking about the Buddhist texts of the Jigji, that it, without religious works or without at least systems of belief that people wanted to communicate, that was a social precondition. That was what were the earliest books. They weren't you know, books of regulations or stories or anything like that. They were religious works. It was those that... it that people were first moved to to duplicate and communicate. Well, that's right, initially. And as you say, the Jigji, the Buddhist teachings, Gutenberg's Bible on the Christian side. But quickly, it's not just that. So yes, on the one hand, we had the religious impulse, the Bible, but also indulgences. Indulgences were something like the medieval bestseller in the early days of mm. printing, and the church would sell those as a way of raising money. But quickly, and this, of course, then is the subsequent development of printing, Quickly, you get into the whole story of the development of Renaissance humanism, and you, you have classical texts that are being printed, Cicero, Pliny, etc., etc. So, and of course, that in a microcosm is, <laughs> to put it very briefly, is the history of development of Renaissance, that you have the religious, Christian, and the classical. And the printing press really reflects this, and of course, also drives it. And you said that in the exhibition, as well as the, there's the beautiful books that they're showing off, how many wonderful books they've got. There's also a press there, isn't there? Which So that's quite good to have the actual physical thing there and it will print something out for you if you have the patience to wait for it. That's exactly right. And that's fantastic. And I, I don't know I don't know if the guy is standing there all day long from nine to five. But And is he picking out the letters and, and lining them up? Yeah. And I was there um, around three in the afternoon. So maybe that's the time to go. I don't know. He was there and he was printing off. He was showing how, how it works. He was setting the type. He was setting up the ink. He had the paper underneath it and he brought the thing down with the big press with his arm and the various viewers and tourists were standing around and everyone was everyone was hoping to get a piece of paper to take home with them. It's great to see actually how the thing works and to get a sense of the size of the thing and how long it takes to make, to produce each page. And then, of course, to produce something like a Gutenberg's Bible, we're talking about 250,000 movements of the press. You know, that doesn't happen overnight. Obviously, that takes three years. Mm, you say in the piece that as a piece of machinery, it reminded you of the guillotine. Let's loop back to that other technology that emerged around the same time, which you mentioned in your piece, which is often contrasted with printing. Yeah. So the two things emerging at the same time and in a sense controlling much of, of early modernity, right? On the one hand, the printing press, on the other hand, um, weaponry. And I mentioned that the press reminded me of nothing so much as of a guillotine. Now, that's a slightly provocative comparison, obviously driven, no doubt, by the fact that this exhibition was happening in Paris. But the size of the thing and the shape of it, too, and the way the arm comes down, there's something quite violent about its force. And, of course, the early humanists were quick to pick up on this, Rabelais, Erasmus, Joachim de Bailey, and, and various others. The, the comparison between, or perhaps the contrast, between printing on the one hand and gunpowder on the other became something of commonplace, these two totems of modernity. Yes, and they were sort of portrayed, as you say, as very much printing good, gunpowder bad. 
and I'm not saying that printing isn't good, but you also say in your piece that it has, well, I mean, it it shows like all new technology, it's multifaceted. People were worried about it at the time, weren't they? Because that meant that information could kind of get away from, it was no longer controlled so much by an elite because if you've got people passing around books or pamphlets or whatever it is, then you don't so much have control over what people know and what they talk about. I think that's right. And that's what's so interesting about the story is it's not actually as simple as saying printing good. Yes, when it was initially invented and then spread across Europe, it was greeted with great delight by certain influential voices. Printing was declared to be a 10th muse, it was declared later on to have inaugurated an eighth age of humanity, and so on and so on, compared with all sorts of mythological figures. But that's the positive side of the story. There was also a negative side. And pretty quickly, 30, 40, 50 years afterwards, you, you start seeing leading Renaissance figures criticizing printing, criticizing it because it leads to what well, it leads to introduction and multiplication of error. That's one fairly common uh, recurring criticism. It vulgarizes as a vulgarization about the life of the mind, I suppose, and in particular, the word of God being vulgarized, which some people want and others don't. There is something of the echo chamber effect in terms of the way ideas are spread or not spread in certain social intellectual groups. And then, of course, there's worry about the quality of the different books and the way they're printed. And quickly, you see pirate uh, publishers, and therefore you see original publishers trying to establish and trying to protect their copyright. You see the invention of patents, the earliest patents, legal patents in Europe go back to this time, 1470s. So there's a whole world that grows up around the invention of printing. And it, it's not purely positive. It's not purely negative. And it's very interesting, I think, to, to trace those two things. And that's what the exhibition does, I think, and, and does very effectively. Mm. Just as an interlude, Alex will laugh at me about this. I'm just going to say very quickly that as a little bit of research for talking about this, I read the Terry Pratchett Discworld book, which deals oh. with printing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not it's laughing at apt. you. I'm not laughing at you. you I am saying... <laughs> It's not the only research I did. That there is nothing that we talk about that doesn't send you down a rabbit hole of research that somehow miraculously leads back to Terry Pratchett. That's all I'm really saying. I'm just saying that he has a book which deals with the beginning of movable type and then which quickly morphs into newspapers. And again, the powers that be, including the state, religion and the wizards, who admittedly we don't have to worry about, they're concerned about it. They're keeping a watchful eye on it but they realise that they can't roll it back. And as you said, Ben, very quickly, all the other stuff comes along. The errors that get introduced, you know, who decides what goes into a paper or a book, who owns it, who makes money from it, all of those things. Sorry, that's not a question. That's just me saying that Terry Pratchett's dealt with it. I do feel that's a point that you might have made without recourse to Terry Pratchett, though. Yes, that's all I'm saying. I'm using him as backup. Yeah, Ben's got Renaissance scholars, and I've got. <laughs> well, actually, I had a different rabbit hole too, which is not Renaissance scholars, but I found myself thinking when I came out of this about um, Walter Benjamin and his famous argument about the work of art in the age of technical reproducibility. Reproduction, yeah. Reproduction, that's right. And Benjamin famously says that the work of art loses its aura when it's reproduced. You know, I paraphrase a very subtle argument, but essentially that's what he says. And I found myself thinking about this as I left the exhibition because, you know, we're looking back 500 years to these early books and partly, I suppose, because of the distance and, and because no doubt of their rarity now, there are only about 48 of the Gutenberg Bibles that are extant. In a sense, what this does is it reinscribes that aura into the books. Now, the books, of course, are by definition reproduced. They're reproduced objects. So it got me thinking about the whole question of the work of art 
and the extent to which we could say, for instance, the beautiful images, and this, the second half of this exhibition shows many, many books of images, and that was one of the things, of course, that printing allowed to happen. Basically, art books now. What we think of as coffee table books, really, now. Beautiful prints by people like Dürer, for instance. And they really, you look at them, and they're really works of art. It's hard not to see them as works of art now. But, of course, they are also multiples. They're reproduced in that Benjaminian sense. So it got me thinking about the, the borders of what we think of as art and artisanship, I suppose. It seems very different between art and literature. Do you know what I mean? Nobody will say, that's not the real Middlemarch, if you're reading a Penguin Classics copy. Whereas if you, you know, have some sort of print of Van Gogh's sunflowers, that's obviously not the real thing. I suppose that's right. Although, of course, at the limits of this, and we go back to Gutenberg's time, the Bibles he was printing, they were then also by hand, editions were made by hand after the printing. So in a sense, they're handmade objects as well as printed objects. But does it just tell us, I wonder, that actually our concept of what is beautiful and what, you know, we may say beauty is what is meant to some extent by aura in that Benjamin statement, that it just shifts. It's socially and historically contingent. Is that possible? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's what's so interesting to look back 500 years at the invention of printing and at the different conditions that obtained at the time. And I think that I suppose what you're saying then is that the work of art, we think of it now as the unique piece, the unique thing. Mm. I don't want to necessarily think of it in those terms. I mean, the extent to which a wood engraving is a unique thing when it's reproduced is, of course, then you know, an open question. The extent to which we call that a work of art is, I think you're right, it's essentially a, a socially contingent question. We can call it art or we can call it mechanically reproduced. The question is then how we ascribe beauty to it. And I began by saying how beautiful these books are, and they really are. And the exhibition mm. is nothing if not a vehicle for that beauty. But does it then matter that those books are by nature reproduced? I'm not sure. These are very interesting questions, I think. The other thing that, that struck me that you say right at the end of your piece is that, of course, people, the way people reacted, as you say, to this new technology, I mean, I'm sure the exhibition doesn't hammer it home, but it's not unlike the way that we have reacted to the internet. It's kind of, you know, it's same old, same old, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. And they are too tactful to hammer it home. But it is clearly implied that 500 years later, we're reacting in the same way, either after the Gutenberg revolution or the Zuckerberg revolution, so to speak. <laughs> you should patent that very quickly. Patent that. Yeah, it's no. very good. Well, the first patents were around this time, as I said, 1470s. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And it is that we have the same kind of reactions. It's very it's almost uncanny to hear people like Erasmus complaining about their words being twisted and things being taken out of context and effectively creating echo chambers within printing and so on and so on, all of which is eerily familiar. Mm. So those of us lucky enough to be hanging out in Paris can go and see it until the middle of July, both, and it sounds thought-provoking and, as you say, Ben, a beautiful exhibition as well. Yeah, and one final tip for those who are lucky enough to go, if you have 50 euros, I recommend the catalogue, and, of course, if you read French, but it's just because it's so beautiful, there's so many beautiful images in it, and whether or not they're works of art in the Benjaminian sense, I'm not sure, but it's it's certainly enjoyable. Well, if anyone does do that, write in and tell us whether they are works of art in the Benjaminian sense. And we'll let you know, Ben, what people say. <laughs> Answers on a postcard, yes or no. Many thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, Lucy. to come on the show is imagination really a muscle can we make it stronger joe moran is here to tell us 
And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark, and I'm betting like many of you, I have a lot of ideas. Get rich quick schemes, home improvements, garden irrigation systems, the great unwritten novel, a blueprint for world peace. I have them all. The problem is they generally come in the middle of the night. They're quite short on detail. And even if there is any detail, I've forgotten it by morning. But help may be at hand in the form of a new book by Albert Reed called The Imagination Muscle, which has an even better subtitle, Where Good Ideas Come From and How to Have More of Them. Jo Moran has reviewed the book in this week's paper and joins us now. Welcome, Jo. Tell us first, do you think of yourself as a fount of good ideas? Yeah, I have lots of ideas. I kind of think ideas are a bit overrated. <laughs> That's a strong start on a piece of <laughs> I mean, if you're a writer, you just have ideas all the time, but it's not really about the, it's about the execution of it, isn't it? It's about the sort of polish of it. I do sort of think that the people who write books and read books and edit books and publish books, we sort of value ideas a lot because that's the sort of world that we live in we live with abstraction and concepts and the imagination and actually this is kind of the one of the things that the book sort of it's almost like the sort of the buried argument to this book really which is that that actually ideas are a bit overrated that actually what matters is kind of when they rub up against the world (laughs) that I kind of think that most things have already been thought and actually 
what matters is what you do with that. It strikes me that you're immediately, and I know this is the kind of thing that I would sort of nitpickily say, and maybe it's a way of putting off actually having to really think about things, but I think to myself, okay, it's we're in define our terms sort of territory. What is an idea? What is imagination? I mean, it did seem to me you teased those points out really well in your piece because you're these are not actually that straightforward as concepts, are they? I mean, what is an idea? Yeah, what is an idea? Well, what is the imagination? I mean, in the book, it's kind of, well, it is ideas. It's sort of um, leaps of insight, kind of moments when you conceive something or think about something differently. So uh, the sort of heroes of the book are people who have those kind of huge insights, those kind of big ideas like Einstein, Picasso, Leonardo, Turner, you know, people who have sort of game-changing insights that change everything. There's a sort of, again, this is a slightly strange book because I think the more interesting ideas are sort of buried in asides rather than the the central argument. And there's another idea in this book, which is that actually imagination is something quite mundane. I mean, he uses the example at the start of the book that I put my money in a bank because I imagine that they will give it me back at some point. And I suppose that is the more mundane idea of imagination, that imagination is just the human ability to conceive things that you can't experience with your senses. And you could argue that all forms of social life depend upon that kind of imagination or that kind of idea that you have to trust that something is true, even if you don't have any sort of firm evidence for it. Like we're having this conversation on a platform where I'm kind of assuming that there's a real person or there, there, there are real people. You're assuming we're not chat GPT. We might be. Or I might be. But that to yeah, me was the true. slightly more interesting idea in the book. It is interesting because it kind of then immediately sort of, just as you've described it there, brings into mind all other possibilities, you, you know, talking about things that are theoretical, talking about being able to have a concept of the future, being able to have a concept of things that aren't concrete. And none of these quite seem to me what imagination means, I suppose, in a kind of Aristotelian sense, in the sense of having a sort of image of something in your mind. And certainly not in the kind of theories of, as you mentioned, people like Keats, the kind of romantic, artistic way of conceiving of what imagination is that Coleridge had, say. I mean, this seems to be a lot more sort of, I suppose maybe I'm being really swayed by the title of the book, which to me has a kind of self-help feel to it. Is that fair? Has like a, you know, how do you get more good ideas? I mean, it sounds a bit more like a business book than it does about a than the sort of philosophical book. Is that fair, do you think? It's slightly more interesting than that. I mean, I think I've heard this term stealth help, where a book is kind of has self-helpy aspects to it, but it's trying to do something more as well. And I think this book's trying to do both of those things. I do think there is a certain, I don't want to have a go at this particular book or this particular author because I don't think it's I don't think this is a particularly bad example of it, but I do think there is a particular type of book that gets published a lot at the moment. 
it usually comes under that genre of smart thinking that that sort of booksellers category and it's the kind of book that you can explain in a sentence and so this book you can explain in a sentence that you know the imagination is a muscle and it's good if you exercise it regularly and I think it has that aspect to it this book and it is a little bit like that it, there's a series of kind of the chapters are kind of organized around tips or life hacks or just things you can do to train your imagination like learn to observe better and talk to strangers and kind of release yourself from habits and actually if you kind of say it like that it sounds a bit banal but actually there's more interesting things going on in between those bits of advice it's actually a really sort of eclectic well-read book I mean I think it's quite admirable that somebody who is not his field is not I think he works for Condé Nast he kind of looks after magazines and he's read a lot of stuff I don't sort of blame the book for that in a way I think it's a certain kind of genre of book that gets published a lot it's the sort of the only thing that can get published is you you kind of have to have an idea you have to kind of have to have a sort of concept the imagination muscle that you can explain in a sort of three minute radio interview but if you actually read the book it's a bit more interesting than that I like the idea though sort of in defense of it that there is no output do you know what I mean it's not that you have to have a better imagination in order to I don't know you know make more money or work more efficiently or you know lose two stone whatever the thing is or give up smoking it's the idea is to have good ideas for the sake of having good ideas because it's interesting and it's kind of fruitful and possibly does help you connect as you say because some of it is about talking to people isn't it yeah and I did like that about the book actually that I said that in the review that imagination is quite an unusual subject for a what looks like a kind of businessy book which actually isn't a business book and the term that you would tend to use more is creativity that's a sort of ubiquitous term in the business lexicon and also in universities where I work it's just kind of endlessly talked about as though it's a kind of positive in itself and I think it's because creativity is seen as being sort of active and productive you can actually create things. I was just thinking that as you said it that the word that it springs to mind links most obviously is with creativity in that context is productivity, isn't it? Which yeah. is not a word we would sort of link to the imagination. I should say, reading your review, it is me who's kind of saying, well, hang on, is that, you know, making it sound like a sort of version of who moved my cheese. You don't make it sound like that, which is why you've written a long and very sort of nuanced review of this. And I, I've just taken a few bits out of it. But you're quite right because, you know, you start with this idea of a conversation between Jean-Claude Carrière and Louis Brunuel, setting themselves a task at the end of each shooting day that Albert Reed cites, to think about a story for half an hour, inventing a story to tell one another. And now that makes me think, well, I'm not an imaginative person because if somebody asked me to do that at the end of the day's work, I'd just be furious. I mean, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't have anything to think of, but I'd also you might be like, Brunuel asked you. Well, would I though? Would I? It's a question. Do you know what I mean? It's like there is that aspect of sort of going the extra mile. I mean, I would be inclined to turn around and say, mate, I've been Louis Bunuel all day. We're not doing another half an hour. Yeah, well, I think Louis Bunuel's that he might have set the challenge, actually, mm. rather than the, the other guy, Carrier. And that's actually, to be fair as well, the imagination muscle sounds like a slightly gimmicky concept for the title of a book. But actually, it comes from it's a quote from that book. 
by Jean-Claude Carrière. It's a book that he found, again, quite appropriately for the subject. He found it sort of serendipitously by when he was browsing on Charing Cross Road in the secondhand bookshops while he was doing a job. This is Albert Reed while he was doing a job that he didn't like just after graduating. And that the quote about the imagination muscle comes from Carrier's book. But I did sort of say in the the review as well, I'm not sure that the way the book pans out actually demonstrates that the imagination is a muscle. I don't think the imagination is a muscle. I don't think the imagination is a muscle even as a metaphor, really, because I don't think actually all the examples that he uses are about sort of catching the imagination unawares, in a sense, rather than training it. That example of... um, Carrier and Bunuel, that is sort of like training your imagination, isn't it? It's kind of giving yourself a daily exercise that you, know, you wouldn't particularly want to do. I wouldn't want to do that either at the end. But actually the examples that Reed uses in the book are not really like that. He doesn't really sort of talk about doing daily exercises in the imagination. It's more about it's more about things like change of circumstances. Like he uses examples like coming out of a party onto a sort of cold pavement and sort of suddenly just kind of feeling your your sensations have changed in some way or he uses another example of the end of a car journey where you just kind of sat in the car sort of just before you go in the house and that sort of makes sense that I can I sort of have my best ideas when I'm sort of thinking about something else or maybe when you're just just waking up, or maybe when you're in the shower, or maybe when you're just kind of distracted by something, when you're not kind of thinking too kind of systematically about it. But that's not really the imagination as a muscle, is it? It's more just you're kind of, the trick would be to engineer more of those kind of situations, I suppose. It sounds like relaxing a muscle, relaxing <laughs> yeah. a guard and letting something come in, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, it sounds as though it's about giving yourself space. I read something once about it. It's like letting, actually, I can't drive. I don't know why I'm saying this, but apparently it's like letting your mind be in neutral. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, yeah, but you can't go anywhere if you're in neutral, can you? No, but couldn't you have a flash of, well, yeah, I suppose you don't want a flash of acceleration, do you? The, I know, no, I'm, I'm not helping. What would Terry Pratchett say is my question. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Some of the people that you mentioned... Joe, you know, about the people that he cites having clash of inspiration. It seemed to me that those people were all heavily trained. They were all completely steeped in their discipline. Do you know what I mean? They weren't just yeah. walking down the street. It's like Newton wasn't just, it wasn't like he didn't know anything about science. It wasn't like Turner didn't know anything about painting. These people were all up to their eyeballs in their chosen profession, you know, whether it was maths or physics or painting or music or whatever it is, you've got to be in a state of readiness in a way, have you? Yeah. And you've, I suppose, got to put in the hours and yeah, have lots of dot days where you don't really do much. I mean, again, that's a bit of a sort of paradox in the book because you get the sort of slightly cliched examples of, you know, Newton watching the falling apple, Turner strapping himself to the mast of a ship so he can see what a storm looks like. Einstein grasping the theory of relativity just as he's waking up one morning. But also it's kind of acknowledging that that's not really how ideas happen, that it, it, they happen by yeah practice, by some kind of friction with the world. I mean, speaking as a writer, I mean, a blank piece of paper is very debilitating. 
that actually often you just need some something to work with <laughs> and that's another idea in the book really that which is that you know that the best ideas come from working with what's already there the example he uses is which i didn't know about this actually which is that the cave paintings the sort of paleolithic cave paintings of things like bison they kind of worked with the contours of the rock so if there was a sort of swelling in the rock that would be the sort of swelling of a the bison's muscle thigh or something so yeah there's that idea in the book as well that actually yeah, ideas don't just come out of nowhere that you sort of have to put the hours in you also have to have some of the sort of conditions of success I suppose now tell me if I'm wrong because you've read the entire book and I've read your thoughts on the book every single person he mentions is a man yeah uh, no actually no he does talk about Virginia Woolf do you know what I mean? There's a bit of great man theory going on on here. I wondered, and I, that's what I want to ask you. About. I think that's probably just the consequence of coming up with some of the fairly obvious people. So, yeah, it's Newton, it's Einstein, it's Leonardo, Alexander Fleming, the, all the great sort of scientists like Richard Feynman. Yeah, there is a bit of that. I mean, I know that they obviously, you know, a lot of them didn't have an easy path to their paradigm shifting success, but, you know, it helped that they weren't sort of you know, dying in childbirth or not getting educated or something like that. There's a little bit of certain things that have to make it easier to have an imagination that runs riot, I would hazard a guess. Yeah, and again, it's, it's this tension in the book between the imagination as something extraordinary, that it's about sort of groundbreaking insights, and those are the examples of the usually great men that he uses. But there is there's another idea in the book that it's something a bit more you know, it's just, it's something a little bit more sort of every day. And that's the more useful things, I suppose, because most of us aren't Einstein. Most of us will never come up with a groundbreaking idea that sort of changes everything. I was interested to hear about the invention of the post-it note, which seems like a, quite a nice, small, practical sort of good idea put into use. Yeah. Well, I had not heard this story, which is kind of odd because I did write about post-it notes maybe I've forgotten it did you <laughs> that was not what I was expecting you to say but now we have to know what did you write about but what do you mean it was in a book called queuing for beginners I wrote which is about the history of daily habits so a lot of it was about office life I'm sure I wrote something about post-it notes but I I don't remember this story which is the person who invented the post-it note was a man called Arthur Fry who was just daydreaming during a dull sermon at his church service in 1973. This quote from the book is actually a good example of this idea I've been talking about. His disengaged mind roaming the unconscious for connections, but still possessed of a sufficient self-awareness to pull a good idea up from the depths. That's how he invented the post-it note. He was just kind of not trying to invent the post-it note or invent anything. He was just kind of, his mind was wandering in a dull sermon at church and I think that's right I think I've had a lot of ideas while listening to, to dull church services or listening to dull lectures in universities or being on trains looking out the window driving a car just just there has to be something else that you're focusing on mm. that sort of means that this idea can somehow kind of sneak in by the back door and possibly some kind of associative stuff going on that at some deeply buried level that we might not be 
aware of, I wonder, little connections being made. Yeah, that's why looking out of a train window feels like such a source of good ideas. There's loads of poems written about things you can see out of train windows just because it's there's always something to see and there's loads of kind of stories that you see that you'll never see the end of because the train's moved on. And yeah, it can sort of spark those kind of serendipitous connections. Sorry, I'm thinking about LARPing now. I'm so sorry. You see, I've started <laughs> thinking about the wits and weddings. So there you have it. All absolutely true. I realise there's been a certain amount of what I now regard as kind of devil's advocacy as I've talked to you about this book, because you know, I mean, I know of myself, it's absolutely the kind of book that I'm going to go out and read and see if I can get better ideas immediately. It's definitely worth reading. It's a slightly messy book. I do think this kind of genre of smart thinking is a bit like this, where you get these books that you can explain in a sentence and that once they've got that sort of basic idea, you can almost stuff anything into it. So it's a bit messy. It's a bit too eclectic, but there'll be something in there that you would find useful. Well, do you know, I'm going to end with this because it seems a very unlikely thing, but it immediately sparked me reading about the imagination made me think that the other day I was listening to a documentary on the radio about the political anarchist beat poet Diane de Prima and her poem Rant, which you listened to her reading in this documentary in which she intoned over and over again, I'll only do it once, the only war that matters is the war against the imagination. All other wars are subsumed in it. So let us take that as our sort of our provocation and our our imagination stirrer for the following week. And Lucy, we better come back and see what we've thought of. <laughs> no pressure. I look out of a train window for a week and I'll come back and tell you what brilliant ideas I've had. <laughs> Joe, that was so interesting. Thank you very, very much for coming to talk to us about our, I don't know, underused, overused, pulled imagination muscle. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. time for this week our thanks go to ben hutchinson and joe moran and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 